At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You need that fishing every day. And that's what makes me good or better at catching world records because I'm on the water a lot. I know what the fish, where they're at and what they're going to be doing. And I'm able to say, all right, this is, you know, the conditions are going to stack up right today. We're going to get fish on the surface where we can see them. And uh, it's going to be calm enough to go far enough. And uh, so I think, you know, learning how to fish, number one, is the first thing. And then uh, then you kind of go into it. You catch a fish, a very good fish on, say, 12-pound test or 12-pound tippet. And then you're, that builds you up a little bit. Oh, my God, I can do that. Like, you know, like somebody catching a 100-pound tarpon on 12-pound, they can do it. And it's hard to believe you could do that with a 12-inch shock tipping and everything, but it's so doable. And uh, so once they get, you know, to that level, it's like playing a video game. Then it's like they can go to, well, why don't we try that on eight? Well, I just lost six. I know. Yeah, but you can do it. Hey, I'm Robert Trossett, and this is a Tom Rowland Podcast. This is episode number 26 with Captain Robert Trossett. This guy's a stud. 238 world records. He has done everything from catching bonefish to blue marlin, the Florida Keys to worldwide. The guy's been everywhere, done everything. And you know what? He has a uh, remarkable attitude, very humble, very thankful, very grateful. RT is is a good friend been a good friend for a long time and it was an honor to sit down with him pick his brain about how he got started how he's done all of these things and where he is going so stay tuned for Robert Trossett some call him the king of Key West and that's probably just about exactly what he is anyway thanks for the podcast at saltwater experience emails more and more good suggestions coming in. Really appreciate it. Send one. Test it out. See if I respond. I will. I promise. Also, this we have been getting more and more um, reviews and ratings on iTunes. I really appreciate it. Let's read one of these. Best Outdoor Podcast with five stars. JTM Esquire puts this one in. Great content. Interesting variety of guests. Well done in every aspect. Let's get the end of the Blue Boys on there. They are definitely on the list, man. Steve Roger, Scott Walker. Scott Walker is delivering a boat to Maryland right now. Steve Roger is 
is uh, busy with his family right now, but they are definitely on the list, and I will definitely get those guys on there because both of them have very interesting stories and entertaining as well. So now, without any further news or readings or anything else, I'm going to sit down with my good friend Robert Trossett and ask him a lot of the questions that, uh, that a lot of people want to ask him. How do you set a world record? What do you do? How have you done it 238 times? Well, all those answers coming your way right now with Robert Trossett. So, R.T. Trossett, what are you doing, man? Thanks for sitting down and doing this. I appreciate it. It's great being here. Just coming up for the ICAST, as you know, and yeah, going to work over in the Zepco Brands booth and try to push some tackle. You've been working for them for a while, right? Yeah, I think about 16 years. 16 years. That's a good relationship. Yeah, it is. And you come to this show every year, right? Yep. It's a it's it's quite a circus sometimes. But well, it's where everything's made and done at, I think. <laughs> That's so. right. That's right. But it is a good time to to see old friends and and um and just just get reacquainted with everything and then see whatever kind of crazy trends are going on in the in the industry. Yeah, I I do use it a lot to see old friends. It's great see the same people every year that you really don't get to see. So yeah, that's real cool. Keep some contacts alive. And yeah. So for people that, that may not know you, you are, um, IGFA hall of famer. Uh, it's actually, dang it. <laughs> it's a lifetime achievement award. Lifetime achievement. Right. Okay. And that is because you have over 200 world records. How many yeah, world records? I have 238. 238. Yes. Because when I was doing a little research for this on the, on the internet, the, the internet hasn't kept up with your, with your recent accomplishments. No, they hit well. I saw 207. Right. It's grown since fishing with Fitz and Dottie, as you know, they, they did a lot for me, you know, yeah. they, they wanted to do that. So mm -hmm. you got to have somebody that's willing to go out and fish four pound tippet or even two pound or I know. whatever. I know the world records are, the world records are interesting. It's an interesting little segment of, of the fishing. I'd, you know, a lot of people are just like, nah, not interested. Same with tournaments. Yeah. But I found, and I'd like to know what you think about it, because you have done more. I mean, who has more records than you? Anybody? Uh, I think Ralph Delph is in the same category. Right in there. there. Yep. And uh, that had to be an interesting time when all of you guys were working off. Were you working off the same dock? Were you at Oceanside? Uh, yeah, we all worked so, pretty much So who dock. all was there? Ralph Delph, Jose? Kenny, you, Harris, Kenny Harris, Bruce Cronin, Bruce Cronin. That was a few of the beginning. Bob Montgomery, of course, was a, yeah. the first real light tackle sport fisherman I met and uh, probably helped me more in fishing in the Keys than anybody. Shoot, Bob, um, he got me started. He, I used to sell him. I worked at uh, Start Over. I worked at Oceanside. It was called uh, Ocean's uh, Edge now. Uh, right? Now it's Ocean's yeah. Edge, yeah. But it was Kings Point Marina to begin with. And so I worked in the parts department when I first moved to Key West. I graduated from the University of Florida in 1974 mm -hmm. and decided to move to Key West in 75 and got a job there. Um, but I get Bob his parts and Bob in turn, I made sure he had parts and Bob in turn started slipping me a few charters on the side mm. and got started. And then uh, before I know it, I worked there about a year and took off on my own. Thanks to Bob, give me some days and, he even hooked me up with Shakespeare Tackle right off the bat. I was a 
you know, I got free tackle and uh-huh. it was pretty cool. So did, did you go down there with a boat or did you acquire a boat? Yeah, I, there? I, I went down with a, uh, 17 Mako pulling behind my Delmont 88 and I had, uh, my chest of drawers tied to the, in the front. <laughs> that, and, and probably that was not an uncommon si- sight going down the keys in 1974. I don't know. It's pretty uncommon. <laughs> I know when I left my backyard, my dad was yelling at me. I thought I sent you to college. So. Was that a, was that a, a, did he later come around or did? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he, but the next year he was down fishing with me every couple of weekends. Oh so. yeah. Yeah. What was so. the scene like in, in 1974 in, in Key West? Well, believe it or not, it was pretty competitive. I do believe that. We had the Met tournament going on in that time, and that was something you wanted to get into if you wanted to fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rod and Reel Club members pretty much got up. Most of the Keys guys started. Um, and then I fished people like Pat Ford and Scott Russell and who I said gave me an education and paid me to do it. Yeah. Cause they knew a lot about the keys fishing already. Mm-hmm. And I got to go with them and they had gone with other guides and kind of gave me a few ideas and actually showed me some things that were very essential to what I do. Do you think most people have somebody like that, like a client that knows way more than, than, than they do as a young inexperienced guide? I know I did. Oh, I think so. Especially on the flats. Yeah. Those guys, you know, you get the spots and the tides and, you know, that guy's not catching fish. He says, Hey, we got to go over here. I, right. Steve Huff took me there last week or, yeah. you know, and that was kind of, that was kind of always, always the, the, the thing that you shouldn't do, I guess, or that they didn't want to do because right. if Steve Huff all of a sudden pulled up and like, uh, I'm there go your days for next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was, but it, you know, it was one of like an automata. They had a bunch of really good courtesy because like if you were on Billy Knowles's flat, yeah, not nah, you left. Yeah, if he if he was pulling up, you just oh, we're not fishing here today. And yeah, same thing with Hank Brown and Rob Fordyce, of course. Yeah, and uh, Craig Brewer's dad. All those guys were legends down. Yeah, and then there was the group of anglers. Like like for me, my first year as a guide, I got hooked up somehow with Fitz Coker. I was so nervous. Oh my god, I was so nervous because I I could barely find my way to Turtle Channel, you know, much less go where and he's been fishing with jose marshall cutchen everybody he really helped me in a way that is hard to explain he wouldn't say let's go over to jose's spot he would just stay quiet we'd fish wherever and he knew there weren't any fish there and he would say well what do you think and i knew that was <laughs> I, I knew that, that was, was bad i, <laughs> I knew i was works. in the wrong place i think we should go look for somewhere else all right he was such a good person for me to fish with and then later when i started the the redbone tournaments you know fishing people like mitch howell cal blumberg those guys they knew way more and that that's what got me into the bait fishing because i started as a as a trying to do it all on fly they're legendary doing that stuff i mean they they've been fished with all the good guides and they've already honed their routine they know how to hook the fish already you don't have to go through that whole scenario right they were really good at that. I had some people, um, Gene, Bill and Gene Duvall, that fished with me a lot in the early times. Yeah. And shoot, they were just, you know, gung-ho, mm-hmm. get as many days as they could, and they wanted to catch world records. Yeah. One of the big tips that I got from them is they kept a index card file full of numbers, as Fitz does, of all the, all the records, hmm. what time, and they were up to date. 
Really? Like where they caught and what the tide was? Well, no, it was more what what was just right now. Okay. What what the record was and what pound test line it yeah. was on. And then we had, uh, you know, we'd have on a guideline. All right, what what's you know what, what time of year is it? Mm-hmm. And it'd be COVID. okay. We've got a shot at cobias today. Kingfish, maybe some big mangroves will show up. Snappers or you know jack or valves mm-hmm. could come around. So then we'd take four or five, six rods, and we'd rig them appropriately. I right, the smallest fish here is a eighteen pound jack on. Say back then it was twelve pound tippet fly. Mm-hmm. So we'd have a rod rigged up for that. We'd also know that the twelve pound cobia was accessible for women, so they could share the rod back and forth. Right. And we would have literally 12, 14 rods set up for different fish that we knew if we saw that fish swim up, grab that rod. If you hook it, it's a world record. Mm-hmm. And then when you were doing that, you would fish for them with uh, for like a week? Because that's an awful lot of preparation for a day or two. Or you, Would you fish for them we for did, a week? We'd fish sometimes when we, four days to a week. Yeah. We did a lot of mothership trips to the Tortugas to where we had oh, yeah. way better opportunity to find bigger fish. Mm-hmm. The same with Dottie and Fitz. I mean, you know, we, we, we'd fish one or two days in a row. And we had it planned, and I'll tell you, you wouldn't believe how many times it works out. Yeah. Instead of just, oh, we better rig this up, and the fish is swimming around the boat, and then he's gone, you know? Yeah. I remember uh, there was one time, I think it was a, it might have been a Redbone tournament or some sort of Keys deal, and you gave away a trip for for you. They auctioned it off, and it was, I can't remember if it, I think you guaranteed somebody a world record. That was IGFA I donated okay. that. So, yeah. And you guaranteed a world record. And I just, as a young guide, I was just thinking, how, this guy is living in a different galaxy because how do you guarantee a world record? But then, you know, when you get into it, you start to see that you probably could if you had the knowledge of all of these different fish and you know what time of year it is, you know what the skill level of the angler is, and you're prepared, you could probably run into a fish that would classify itself as a world record if you could catch it. Yeah, well, this guy bought the trip. I think I gave away, he had five days, but I guarantee you a world record. In, don't, I guarantee you a record in three days, and I'd fish you two more days if I didn't get you that record. <laughs> well, we ended up going fishing, and we caught that fish in about, I think it was 11 o'clock in the morning of the first day. <laughs> And it was a 200 and, or maybe I forgot exactly, 200 to 300 pound bull shark on 30 pound test. Wow. He liked that. He was, and we only fished, he fished the next day and then they had celebrated so much. I think that they didn't care about fishing anymore. That was it. Yeah, that was it. So the record pursuit for you grew out of the Met tournament because the Met tournament was kind of similar. Like there were line class and you were after certain fish. And then that was kind of a big thing in South Florida, right? Right. And then Rod and Reel Club, Tropical Anglers, but mostly the Rod and Reel Club would fish their their parameters and their tackle, which was similar to world record fishing. Mm-hmm. They would categorize it in spin or conventional or plug. No fly. Where the IGFA doesn't care. Yeah, they had fly to them. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Where the IGFA doesn't, you know, if you catch it, just line class. Mm-hmm. And then they'd do fly. Yeah. The club fishing it bred into the, while you were club fishing, you were catching fish for the Met, so which had line class divisions and everything like that. Right. And then in the meantime of that, then you started thinking, well, there could be a world record here. And uh, at first, before we did figure out some of that stuff, it was happenstancely, oh, my God, I just caught a 65-pound king on 12-pound test. Yeah. We better check to see if that's a record. Right. Instead of doing, you know, your research and then 
going after that yeah. fish. Now, how many times in the early days of your record pursuit do you catch a fish like that and you're not fishing the right tackle? Or And when I say, you know, for people that aren't, aren't familiar with world records, there is a very precise recipe for what you have to do. The IGFA uh, has certain rules. You have to have a certain length leader with fly. You can have a certain length shock tippet. You can have all of this stuff. There are rules. Only one person can touch the rod on and on down the line. There's a very precise uh, uh, recipe for what will qualify for a world record. The line has to test a certain way. You have to send that line in. How many of these early days kind of things didn't work out? Like world records that didn't You'd lose quite a few because you, most of the time the your anglers weren't good, really what I wouldn't let them use or not wouldn't let them use. I'd load the reels with, you know, line it test yeah, set twelve right, pound right. test, but it broke at fifteen. Right. So yeah, we've had a few go bad. I'd say at least twenty, twenty five fish. Yeah. And then catching fish too, even though you're prepared and you tried and your line doesn't test, that's another thing. So now I mean. Line gets tested before it even goes on the boat. Right. You send it off and make sure it's going to work. So you buy them oh. a little bulk spool. That's a good way to do that part. Yeah. And they'll, the IJFA will do that for you? Yes, they'll test it. And now with the at early days, you're killing all those fish, right? Right. Like bringing them back. And then now there are ways that you can release them. Have you uh, done some successful world record releases? We have. Um one of the easier ones to release is a big permit. Mm -hmm. You can put them in your bait wells and you can't harm them. Yeah. Um, I know Ralph Delph brought a lemon shark, <laughs> a big one, and he released that one. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of getting the proper weights and stuff, but, you know, some of these weights have gotten to be, you could have a, a scale of yours and then you're the waymaster with just somebody else and you can take it to a tree. You have to at least be on something right dry land which mm -hmm. is which is good but um i don't know i i like the old way really if you want to get a world record you kill it and that's and everybody measures on a certified scale and right. yeah you got a, a state certified scale that you know you can use yeah a lot of guys have bought the electronic scales and stuff like that mm -hmm. although it's... i see mainstay of the the world record fishing down here in the keys is it's it's slowed down a little bit just don't have quite the enthusiasm in it why do you think that is uh i think because we've lost the miami real club miami rod and real club and we don't have the met tournament anymore that newer people are just out there we got braid and they're just wailing on fish catching everything you hook mm -hmm. and you know there's no then and they don't want and time they don't want to put the time into it because you may go three, four, five, six trips, you know, spend 10, 12,000 bucks, never catch one. And then, you know, all of a sudden you go catch two or you catch five. You know, right. You know, so it, it do you happens. think, do you think that I, I don't really like comparing, you know, the seventies to the nineties to, to now, but it has that changed in your opinion like that? Because the fishing was just that much better in the seventies, eighties, nineties, than it is today because everybody you, you you would pull up someplace there's there's 40 cobia on the surface sure you can catch all of them if you want but let's try it on this pound test or we caught so many yesterday let's let's have a little bit more of a challenge was that part of it or or i think yeah i think it's a big part of it i mean 
when you have 50 fish to pick from, it's a lot easier than when three or four swim up. Yeah. And then, you know, so you're going to have a, a much more diverse group of fish. One, for instance, uh, fishing this guy, Herb Ratner. Yeah. He got, got a bunch a of my records. Yeah. And we, we wanted a four pound kingfish record and, uh, we fished and we fished and we fished. I mean, it, we hooked 84 kingfish on four pound test <laughs> and that's what we caught the 84th. One thing I, we noticed is, or I noticed, you know, the fish would run and then when he would shift gears, the line would break every time. Yep. And, uh, we found these fish one day and the water was colder than they should have been in. And we caught a couple on jigs and I said, these things ain't fighting so hard. And, uh, so we, I grabbed the four pound. I said, he made a nice cast, you know, quick cast. And we got one on there. It was 12 pounds, 12 ounces. Wow. But 84 tries. Wow. So that's, that's patience. I mean, yeah. that's you're, and that's 84 liters. You got to tie. I know. And, that's uh, what I was going to say is it's not just, just, Oh, I just broke off this deal. Now you got to tie and be confident in, in the, in the knots and be confident in the length of the whole. I mean, there's measuring, there's everything that goes into, into setting up a world record, uh, leader. It's not just like tying on another fly. Yeah. And that, and that, that to make it clear that wasn't in one day, you know, that's, that's six or eight days of, right. you know, trying to fish for them. Well, that's what I think. The but it might've been in two years. Yeah. Well, I think that's the romantic idea of how a world record is set you know there's a lot of hard work that gets put into it and you you're looking for this particular fish and there's failure there's a lot of failure lot and you've got to have that one guy but but in your case you're fishing everything in the keys flats to offshore everything so you have all of these records available to you as the wind blows as conditions change that same guy might not be out there waiting for that 12 pound kingfish you might try a shark or might try a barracuda or whatever, another record, right? Yeah. A lot of times we have like, let's, this is our main fish to go for, but we know we got this to back it up. We go tease a barracuda up even, you know, right near the Marquesas or something mm -hmm. like that and be able to catch them on night tackle. So. so how do you think, you know, when you look back, you're one of the most accomplished guides to ever be in the, in the Florida Keys, in my opinion, how do you think this pursuit of these world records helps you to mature and grow and learn as a fishing guide, as a fisherman, as somebody that, do you think that if you were just out there fishing for whatever was biting with all of your customers, as opposed to going for these world records, that you would have as much knowledge about the fishery as you do now? Uh, no. You, I mean, you need, to, you need that fishing every day. And that's what makes me or better at catching world records because I'm on the water a lot. I know what the fish, where they're at and what they're going to be doing. And I'm able to say, all right, this is, you know, the conditions are going to stack up right today. We're going to get fish on the surface where we can see them. And uh, it's going to be calm enough to go far enough. And uh, so I think, you know, learning how to fish, number one is the first thing. And then, uh, then you kind of go into it. You catch a fish a very good fish on say 12 pound test or 12 mm -hmm. pound tippet. And then you're, that builds you up a little bit. Oh my God, I can do that. Like, you know, like somebody catching a hundred pound tarp right. on 12 pound, they can do it. Yeah. And it's hard to believe you could do that with a 12 inch shock tipping and everything, but it's so doable. Yeah. And uh, so once they get, you know, to that level, it's like playing a video game. Then it's like, they can go to, well, why don't we try that on eight? 
well, I just lost six. I know. Yeah, but you can do it. Mm. And um, so that, that I guess, makes it better. You build it up. Yeah. Or you can build into it. Yeah. What I found um, for both the tournaments and the world records and, well, well, really those things, is like if I would just go out on a charter and the weather's great for tarpon today, so you're going to go tarpon fishing. If the wind blows a little, let's go permit fishing. Let's do whatever. Your client comes and he says, well, I want to catch something, and so you go f- go for that. And the only thing that is that is um, steering you in any direction is whatever your customers are asking for, right? But you can always talk them out of it kind of a little bit. Like if if for whatever reason it's blowing really, really hard and you think the water's going to be all murky and, and, and it's not going to be good for tarpon on the ocean side or the waves are going to be coming over the bow and they want to fly fish for tarpon on the ocean side you can say you know what the conditions are really bad for that but they're really good for permit fishing so let's go try that okay and maybe you catch one and they end up very happy but if i continued to fish like that of just kind of whichever way the wind blows and just going for the best thing what i found is that you weren't i wasn't growing much as a as a fishing guide and when i started to get into the tournaments i may be on a great tarpon bite but the tournament is redfish and bonefish so it doesn't matter how many tarpon i catch it doesn't they don't even count they're not you're not even fishing for those at that time and maybe my my general year schedule would be you know i'm going to go for the big tarpon you know at this particular time of the year and then the little tarpon after that and I'm not even thinking about redfish and bonefish. And then as you start to get into these tournaments, it's, it's like, okay, there's going to be a starter's pistol that's going to say, go. And no matter what the conditions are, no matter what is happening, you're going to have to go for those particular fish. That helped me to, to get better very, very, very quickly, like on steroids quickly. Because the other thing that was happening is, is you go to those tournaments and you're thinking, well, I've never caught more than three bonefish in a day. Nobody's going to do that. And somebody comes in with 17 or 18 <laughs> yeah. or 25 or Timmy Carlisle, you know, puts up a monster 35 bonefish day. You'd never even heard of anybody doing that. He did it. He's got pictures of every single one of them. It's, it's legit, right? right? And then you're kind of like, wow, there are possibilities that I didn't know about because on a regular day, Timmy Carlisle would come back to the dock and quietly put his boat on the trailer and not say a word to anybody. And he's got 35 bonefish when everybody else caught one, two, you know, and then these tournaments would, would, uh, allow you to see into that, that quiet guy. Yeah. Like, what, the, he's, he's amazing. I got to fish with him a couple of times. Um, and we slammed three times in a row. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And it's just, what are you going over? Where are you going? Shh, this is a this is a pretty good spot. Uh huh. Turn your back. Here come bonefish right around the corner. I mean, there's no bonefish here. So yeah, it's when you have to do it, you learn quick. Yeah, and then you get to see what everybody else is doing. But for the world records too, um, I found that uh, not not just world records, but even like the Key West Fishing Tournament, which is a very very casual, family oriented kind of very casual it's right. certainly not oh. world records it's certainly not super competitive but what it does is that there are all these all these fish are available you can catch them on all these different ways and you know if you catch something you can enter it 
your customer gets a little certificate or whatever, and uh, and they're super happy. I used it for my kids to get them involved because not every day are you going to be able to go out there and get the super glamour species. But when you can go with the kids and look through the book and be like, look, ladyfish, look, it's, it's vacant. Nobody's caught any this year. Let's go out and catch every one of the ladyfish records. Then the kid was so excited. My kids were just super excited. Like the ladyfish all of a sudden was the glamour species, you know? And I, I, that's what I thought was going on with the world records in that pursuit is that, you know, most days you'd be after something really big, but today you're looking for this eight pound Jack Cravel and you're looking for it in a situation where it's not in a school because they're going to get, every time you hook one, another one breaks the fish off, right? You're looking for it like Fitz and Dottie and I went out and we caught one of our uh, Jack records and I specifically looked for it on the back of a ray. And I was on the uh, Lavina bank, and they were just, every ray had a had a, a jack on the back of it. Like, this looks like a perfect place. Like, there's nothing to catch the line. There's only one fish on the back of these rays. We'll just pull down through here, and all she's got to do is land it. We're not going to worry about another fish. But to be thinking in those, in those ways of, okay, an eight-pound jack is not a crazy-sized fish but I need to find it in this situation, which as a guide made me kind of expand. And I'm sure that that has happened with, with all of these 238 world records. Your knowledge has to be continually expanding because it's not just about catching a 12 pound kingfish. It's about catching it in a certain way or that day that they're not fighting very well and 84 attempts. I find that to be really interesting about how that how that process just helps you to grow and get more experience. Yeah. We did similar with the Jack and we were looking for a two pound tippet. Yeah. I think it had to be three pounds. I mean, we went 20 without getting, we finally caught one. I mean, you thought we caught the biggest, like we got a thousand pound blue Marlin. It was, right. you know, high fives and everything all around, but that, it's, that's why you do it. That's why you do it on light tackle. It's exceedingly difficult. Yeah. And then, then you throw in there on fly, on spin, on plug, all of that stuff is is uh, is making it difficult on purpose. Like, it's nothing to catch a three pound jack. Most people catch a three pound jack on twenty pound and they don't even want it. But all of a sudden, that fish, like a lot of people, I think may may think, and I've heard people say that you know, tournament fishermen and world records don't have any respect for the fish. But I think it's the other way around. Like. You have ultimate respect for the fish. Now your 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 whole day in this this whole expensive process of going out there is is in pursuit of a three pound jack. And when you catch it, it's the greatest thing in the world. Well, it's it's a it's a record. Nobody else has done it. Right. And so that that's that's a good point. Bum boys both grew up in that Key West fishing tournament mm -hmm. atmosphere also. And that really gave them knowledge of how to use each type of tackle. And then uh, the skill to to put it to use, and then see how see how the fly rod was better for a jack, and, or catching a, a big amberjack tees up, rather than just casting into a you know aimlessly casting like you would sometimes with a spinning rod or something like that when you're blind fishing. So yeah, they would learn in each situation. When you were raising your boys, did you? steer them towards any particular type of tackle or did they did they um gravitate to any particular type of tackle yeah 
when Chris was born, I guess he was maybe a year or two years old, I gave him a spinning reel as a toy. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was no time, he, he would use that thing like it was supposed to be used. And the first day he started fishing with it, I just watched him open the bail and just start pulling the line out, free drifting for a snapper in the canal. And I just said, well, that was, that's still, that's, that's built in. Poor snappers. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much with him, poor fish. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think they gravitated towards anything. It was like, we go troll, they do conventional reels. If we go live bait fish, most of the time we do spinning reels. If we flat fish, you know, they would use their spinning reels. Mm-hmm. And, um, it took them a while to get into fly. They always wanted to do it. But it took that learning curve so you you could actually cast and catch a fish. Yeah. As you know, most people that start out fly fishing, it's a very difficult road to go on. Mm-hmm. Because first you gotta be able to present the first you gotta be able to see the fish on the say on the flats. Then you gotta be able to present the fly. Then you gotta learn how to feed the fish. Once the fish eats, then you gotta know what he's gonna do. Mm-hmm. A bonefish will rip off real fast, or a tarpon may jump right at you and then rip off around. So or a permit, you know, he's he's going to subtle bite. I think the fly fishing, you you really got to build into it. Once you get good at it, it's probably one of the best ways to catch a fish. I mean, especially a flats fish. Yeah. Um, there has been a, a major um, influx of anglers that, that start all of this fishing as fly fish, fly fishing and don't, don't use any of the other types of, of bait, uh, of, of tackle or anything else. I was one of those. Like I came from from uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Trout Guide down to the Keys, and I'm thinking I'm going to be able to do this on fly. That's what I want to do. And I encountered all of the situations that you're talking about. Well, first of all, I wasn't even able to see the fish. Secondly, you know, I had never caught one before, and now I'm trying to catch it in one of the more more difficult ways, I guess. But it's a lot of times it's not the more difficult way. You just don't know what the fish behavior is. Uh, in order to make your fly look like what they would really like to eat. And I look back on it, I'm like, man, if I had started out, you know, bait fishing, well, I, I don't know. I didn't have, I didn't really have that opportunity because everybody I was hanging around with was a fly fishing guide and, and they were all fly fishing guides because they had already done all this other stuff, right? I'm right. coming in new, starting at, at fly. And it was a, it was a long very difficult process. Um, and then later when I got into the tournaments, people like Cal Blumberg are showing me what the, you know, what the skill level of somebody can, the skill level that someone can have with a spinning rod, which is, yeah. I mean, man, I'm talking about throwing it 60 feet and having that shrimp land without a splash and right in front of a bonefish and, and hook it and catch every single one of them. And then I gained a lot of respect for that type of fishing because I realized, man, there is a lot that goes into it. And then as what you're doing, the there's so much that goes into being able to find the bait, being able to keep the bait alive, being able to know where the bait is all the time. And the bait being, you know, pilchards, thread fins, whatever kind of live fish that you're, you're, you're being able to catch. And that knowledge is just huge. And I think, I think a while ago, a lot of people worked their way all the way up through that and said, fly fishing is just easier. I don't have to worry about any of that bait. I don't have to do any of this stuff. I go out there. I enjoy it. It's fun. And uh, so what if I catch a few less? I don't have to do all this other stuff. But then now it's a different deal. Like people are just starting out fly fishing and they don't know anything about how to throw a cast net. They don't know anything about where the bait might be. They're just just out there. 
Get yes. out there cold doing it the hard way. Very hard. But, you know, te- teaching or learning how to feed a fish is probably, I think, if you can feed them on something uh, like a jig or you can feed them on a flyer or you can even feed them with a the bait and watch a reaction, that gives you the next step. For instance, uh, I did a lot of wreck fishing for permit, mm-hmm. or I do a lot of wreck fishing for permit. And there you're going to get, we got a school now, a thousand fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I could take somebody there and, you know, they could get a few follows and, and see that you pull the jig away, jig, 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 and he won't eat it yet. And I said, now just drop it. And you drop the jig and the fisherman immediately eats it. And the fly, you can teach the same thing because you have so many interested fish instead of just that one that maybe got on edge or, you know, when you threw the fly to him. So I think you could learn a lot from fishing on the deep, you know, the deeper water on the wrecks than you can, um, you know, that you could learn more in two days of it than you can in two years of fly fishing on the flat. Right. So I think it's a good thing. And then you could take that back to your flats fishing and you can make more fish bite. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I like, I don't know, I, over the, over the years, I just feel like all the different rods, all the different techniques are just tools. They're just, they're just tools. You gotta, you gotta be able to throw a spinning rod. You have to be able to troll a conventional rod. You have to be able to, to, uh, to fly fish. And that's, that's, what's a little bit different. I think in the, in the Florida Keys is that pretty much everybody can handle all the different types of tackle. You may have people that would prefer one over the other, but I think a lot of that goes into uh, just the weather conditions, right? Like, yeah. you know, some days are just not. Some days you can't fish fly. Right. And, and one of my big things is fish and fly. And I learned from it early on is that activity breeds activity. So mm-hmm. if you're out in the deeper water, some days you don't start off fly fishing. You're just like, they ain't going to bite. They're barely biting a live bait right. or whatever. And then the more fish you catch, the more excited that school of fish gets, say blackfin tuna, for instance, or little tunies or whatever. And then the more that are swimming around the boat. So it's hard to get a pure fly fisherman to just start off catching fish. Right. Oh, okay, I'll wait. Yeah. And I'm like, well, they may never bite because these conditions don't look right. And then all of a sudden they'll get to the point and I'm like, grab your fly rod. Yeah. And he hits the water and he gets a fish. Right. Knowing the conditions and that way. But you have to build it. Like I, yeah, I always, I'm, you say, what'd you say? Some, something breeds, no, activity, activity breeds, breeds a, activity. I say action brings action. Yeah. That's what, that's what, that's funny because that, but it's all about building, building that, you know, a lot of those fish are down deep, you know, and, and you're catching some, they're throwing up, uh, they're eating the little scraps. They, they bite half the pilchard and then there's another half falling down. All of that stuff starts happening and then it becomes this whole feeding, feeding situation and then they get closer and closer and then they they start feeding you know with with less uh apprehension and then eventually then they take a fly yeah. live pilchers that's right <laughs> <laughs> lucky Bring for us yeah so have you done uh i know one of the one of the things i thought was really cool when i was first starting out i i got every magazine i read every book i watched every tv show one of the best ones i ever saw was was you going out to the um to the shrimp boats and uh and teasing up the well i don't know if it was on the shrimp boats i saw one where you're on a shrimp boats and doing the blackfin and then another where you're teasing up the amberjacks right and that teasing of the amberjacks just that blew me away because i'm a flats fisherman i never went out there at that point in my career and i had never seen that before just thought it was just amazing what what you guys were doing 
with a blue runner, teasing those amber jacks up, and then just just having these massive fish right there. That's pretty cool. Well, one of those things is uh, getting, you know, what I try to say is would you to get an average angler an extraordinary shot. So to be able to get the fish into a position that, some, that an average angler can get a fly to mm-hmm. or a below average angler, that's where all these teasing things were developed. Mm-hmm. So we could get the fish so worked up that you could throw a cigarette butt in the water a lot of times and they would eat it. I yeah. mean, it, it, they just didn't know. And what we was hit upon earlier, the, the quantity of fish made a big difference in that because mm. breeding action, if you have 30 amberjacks in that spot, they're going to come up a lot easier than if you're just trying to get one or two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the spots back then, there'd be a hundred amberjacks there. Yeah. And so it was just like touch the run in the water and then light them on fire. They just, they couldn't keep themselves from doing that. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of that. What do you think is, uh, is your favorite? If you were to, um, either as a, as a fisherman, what do you think your favorite situation, your favorite fish? I still love throwing the fly at tarpon on flats. Mm. And I really like catching wahoos. They're, that's a different breed of fish, especially when, you know, finding a, a quantity of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's many different ways that you can catch them that a lot of people don't know about. But, I mean, it's like if you want to catch them on live bait, you can catch them on live bait. If you want a high-speed troll for them, you can, you can do that. Or you can, if you can get them eating live baits and you can see one, you can actually chunk them to the boat and catch them on a fly rod or you catch them on a, just a chunk of meat. Wow. Whatever. Wahoo on fly. Well, That's, most people uh, don't realize about the Wahoos is they travel in a school. I mean, they're usually, when you catch one, there's 30, 40, could be 100, mm-hmm. and you never see that. And a Wahoo swims on a, a flat plane mostly. He doesn't stack up. He will stack some, but, you know, when they're out feeding, there's one there, and then there's one 30 yards away, mm-hmm. and there'll be another one, and they're just swimming around in a big, giant one turns, even though and the other ones were turning. Mm-hmm. So you can keep traffic of the school. But if you catch one, if you leave him in the water like a dolphin, you can keep catching them. Really? Yeah. I've never done that. Yeah. I mean, I've done the chunking. I've done, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about with Wahoo, but I've never just left one in the water like that. Leave one in the water until you hook another one. Wow. And then take him out. And, it, you know, it works. So Interesting. But try that next time. Yeah. Do you have any, any differences between the, like, those are two fish that you like to do yourself. Do you have any fish or situations that you like to pursue with clients? Like this is, this is my favorite guiding situation. Mm. Does that change at all? You know, I, I just like fishing so much. It, I, I don't mind catching mangrove snappers to grunts to blue marlin. Yeah. But I think the wreck fishing scenario is the one that I think uh, amazes people the most. And they're sitting there and, all of a sudden, I'm teasing him a j- amberjack, and he catch that, and then turn around and look, and the guy says, oh, there's a shark behind the boat. And I just grab a rod with a jig on it. I said, catch that cobia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, so it's pretty cool. You get the, and then you catch a big mangrove snappers or something. Yeah, and that's, that's moving in action when, when you get on those spots. It's just, I mean, next thing you know, you've, you've got 15 meticulously prepared rods, and now every one of them is is tore up tore, and gone. Tore up. <laughs> And then you have a rigging party while they eat lunch. Uh, yep, we're going to eat lunch now. <laughs> what about traveling? Have you done much uh, fishing travel? Yep, I've done a lot of traveling. So I think that that's 
the biggest part of my gaining knowledge is getting knowledge from someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've been all through the Caribbean, Bermuda, all through Florida. I've been through the Bahamas, um, been to Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, heck, uh, uh, the Azores. Australia? I've been to Australia. Mm -hmm. the, the Barrier Reef, have you yeah, done that? Yeah, I did a Barrier Reef. You did a three-week mothership trip out there. Hmm. Got to fish waters that nobody has ever sport fished. Yeah. Big dog-tooth tuna. That's what I was going to ask you about, the dog-tooth tuna. That fish just is scary to me. You take a tuna and how fast they are, and then you put this this set of jaws in them that looks like they could eat anything in the ocean. Ever since I saw my first one, I wanted to catch one, and I got to go on this trip, and it's a funny story, but we're out there. There's four of us, and I, I got to go along the trip as a guest. And so we catch a big yellow fin, and then they catch a – smaller dog tooth and then they get a, a, a sierra mackerel i think they call them mm -hmm. and then the rod goes off and this i'm going like rod's just smoking i'm telling my friend buddy sour i said buddy take that rod this is the this is a big fish nope it's your turn you take it so i fight the fish catch it so my very first dog tooth tuna was a world record <laughs> 163 and a half pounds on 30 pound test wow and Buddy says, you're not fishing anymore. <laughs> That's what Buddy is. It's two and a half more weeks of fishing. Uh, and uh, you you could probably, on a trip like that, you could probably just say, okay, no problem. And then in a day and a half, they've caught so many fish that they're uh, they're begging you to fish. Yeah, we had a really great trip there. So, And we fished out at, at um, Willits Island, which is 390 miles from Cairns. And there's several barrier chains out there and we got to go to this one spot i mean it just was there was a weather station there and an island wow and then there was like the great barrier reef around that island there wasn't too as many marlin there but uh the trevallies giant trevallies and just a species of snapper and everything we just we had a really great trip what do you think about the giant trevally that thing's a beast. Yeah. Did yeah. you catch some big ones? Yeah, we caught some in the 60, 75-pound range. Yeah, that's that's and a real fish. They're real fish. And uh, they're, they were so, you know, out there, they were just never, you could catch them on anything. Mm -hmm. We were using just regular Florida deep jigs and casting poppers and whatever. It's, do you think a 60-pound Jack Crevel would fight better than a 60-pound Trevally or about even? I think about even. I, maybe the Trevally's a little less. A little less? Yeah. Yeah, I see the first. I've I've gone in a few places where there are trevally. I've been able to cast at some really big ones, but I've never caught a really big one. And but you know, you go to some of these places where where you're catching trevallys that are four or five pounds. I thought they were kind of overrated because yeah. they they weren't a whole lot better than a four or five pound Jack Crevel. And if somebody in Florida caught a four or five pound Jack Crevel, that you know they were bone fishing and 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 that thing swam up and, and ate the fly they'd be disappointed right well but, when you get up to that bigger size yeah it's they're just you know they're big so <laughs> and they get way bigger than jack cravals yeah and they can live on the edge of those reefs and they can go deep and then cut you off and stuff so yeah i saw i saw a pretty good situation in christmas island where there were two really giant ones probably around 100 pounds going down this beach and i ran down in front of them and and made a couple of casts and they came right up to the rod tip and didn't eat it and then i got back out of the water ran down this thing again and got in front of them again and i did that two or three times 
And each time they would come right up to the end of the rod tip and the flies right there. And they would just swirl and just like <laughs> throw a big wake. And then I'd get out and go down again, but never, never could catch them. But I tell you that fish is scary. I mean, that's like a hundred pound Jack Cravel swimming <laughs> at you at full speed. And you're not sure what's going to happen. Well, is, he, or what? is he interested in this fly or my knee? Yeah. Or should I, yeah. <laughs> or should I even set the hook if I do hook him? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, what, uh, what entertains you these days? Are you still fishing as hard as you, as you were? Are you spending some time other places? Well, I, I am. I just got back from Bermuda where I don't know if you heard, but I caught a 10 pound hogfish on fly. Wow. Which is probably what very best catch I've ever wow. done. I mean, it's so what, how are you fishing for him to catch one on fly? Like flats. Oh, really? Three it's foot just of water. sitting there on the, on the flat. I got 15 shots at fish and finally hooked one. Wow. This guy, Ian Lindell over there, she's, he probably knows more about him than anybody. Uh, and amazing. So, wow. So do the, you have the, the dorsal out of the water? Like sometimes they fail. Sometimes they're in two or three, you know, three feet. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, oh yeah. I see him actually flip flopping on top. Wow. And it's, it's funny cause that big hog mouth. I know. They, they open it and press it into the sand. Never seen them do that. Huh. You know, they don't just nip a lot of times. Yeah. They'll open that mouth pretty wide. And, and they, they'll sense something and try to eat it. And they're not so spooky as when you cast, they'll just swim away. But you can back off and let him go back. Once he starts to feed, he'll turn red. Mm. And that's when we'd pull back up to him to when he was relaxed oh, that's and everything. super cool. And uh, finally, I, you know, you could you get it. You wanted him to see it fall like you would a permit. Mm-hmm. It's very much like a permit fly. It's like our early permit flies. Mm-hmm. They look like a crab and a shrimp. Yeah very heavily weighted he finally i you know i'd move it and he'd move towards it but he'd miss it you know because he couldn't smell it and one time i got a bob a pull off you know i, I saw the line move but when i went i was a little bit too late uh-huh because you got i mean it's you really have to be on top of what he was doing yeah and finally the, we were pull actually pulling off the flat and uh, about done for the day and uh, this one just cursed seemed mudding down i threw it out in front of him and he missed it about three times and then boom and he got it and he sucked it in and I just came tight real easy. And he was hooked really far down the throat, which was amazing. The way he fought, he ran out into the sand because you're fishing kind of right, these real shallow coral reefs. Mm-hmm. So he ran way out to the sand and then decided, he, you know, oh, I'm going back to the reefs. So Ian had already started pulling and uh, he pulled us as far as he could get away from the reef. And now the fish is tugging back to the reef. He's getting close to the le- mm-hmm. ledges and everything. I mean, these reefs are only that deep yeah they're not out of the water but they're they're two feet and uh he said just i got him don't worry so it was a 10 pound tip but we just keep pulling and finally the fish turns and he glow just like a glide glowed glid <laughs> he glid out he, he followed the boat and just swimming like we were plating away and then we got we thought we're far enough and fought him and he fought real hard again but that, wow. that constant pressure i think pulling away from him made that fish Swim away from the reef, huh. and that guy doing. I mean, he, he's caught thirty-five. I think that was his thirty-fifth. Really, out of his boat on fly. So they're just. I mean, that's like a thing. They're they're you doing. Do it. It. That's like that's like the early days of permit fishing. You know, where people are like, oh no, I really caught one. I mean, wasn't it, not in the dorsal. I caught him right in the mouth. I don't think there's many places in the world you can do it. I think Bermuda is probably one place that's been developed to do it. Interesting to find that kind of water, but that's cool. Um, so the fly, does it need to be sitting stationary and still? still? 
on the bottom. If you move it, he's not interested. He's not interested. So you want him to see it fall, and then he'll come over there and check it out. And he, yeah, he just he'll he'll find it. I don't know if his vision's bad because it he, it seemed like they always were around it. Huh. And then you know didn't interesting. Get, yeah, that's cool. Um, and I love the way that you're ta- that you're saying that they'll they'll swim away and then turn red again when they're when they're uh, ready to feed because that's that sounds super cool. Yeah, you know, they the, go they go just white, same color as the sand because it's beautiful clear wow. water. And then he'll get on some grass and or he'll just start you know okay that's whatever that was gone it just turned to back to red. So now that he's pioneering this this fishery. Is he killing these fish? No, everyone, everyone's released. Everyone's released. And he puts them in this. He's got a big well, and he puts them in the well and keeps them in there for a couple hours, letting them build up their uh, strength. Which I really, uh, and then releases them and, in the same area or no? Uh, he, re- he takes them to deeper water so they're not stressed as much. And huh? But it's it's important for him to, for those fish to live. So yeah, that's cool. That, I caught a female and uh, I did throw it one that was maybe eighteen or twenty pounds. It was giant fish, and. Uh, but I didn't get him. That's cool to see a, a fishery be pioneered like that. And I'll bet you that now that he's figured out how to do it, and, you know, at first you're thinking there's probably only a few places in the world that this happens, but I bet there's more than we, bet think. Than we think. Oh yeah. And now that it's a thing, that it can actually be done, somebody else is going to be like, huh, i never even thrown at those things. Yeah. Because I've been to Christmas Island twice. The first time I went there, trigger fish everywhere. Nobody threw at them. Not one right. person threw at them. I've been hearing about this. And yeah. and it was just it was just not no one was interested. Ah, triggerfish. They don't bite. Okay. The second time I went there, now this is a thing, a full on I I only want to fish for trevally and triggerfish. That's what people would say. No no bonefish, not interested in the bonefish anymore. And so, I mean, the first day I go out there, I'm like, okay, well what do you throw like a permit fly or something and, and pretty much a little little crab and you get their attention there's nothing to getting their attention they come right over to it and then i just started just doing a long strip just having that fly just you know just just moving along the bottom like mm-hmm. that and they would come down and they would pin it to the bottom and i would just kind of come tight to them and then just set the hook like that not like a not like a hard set but like just come tight and then just keep pulling and it would just pull into their into their lip and and i caught four or five the first day and uh they fight hard dude right real hard and then there's all these different kinds they're beautiful there's all different kind of colors and everything and they make amazing pictures but it's just it was just interesting to me to see the difference between that first time that i went there 20 years ago you fast forward 20 years and now this is a full-on thing where right. where there are there's a whole bunch of flies for these fish. There's all these techniques. There are guides that specialize in trigger fish. There's it it became and now there's three fish that you fish for there. Like there's <laughs> bonefish, trigger fish, and and Trevally. uh and Trevally. And then the same thing is starting to happen with the milkfish, where the first time I went to Christmas Island is the first time I ever saw a milkfish. They don't bite. You know, <laughs> and you can fish for them all you want. And then I guess some of the Seychelles guides figured out that they like, you know, they I heard somebody cut up a green shoelace and, and put put it on a hook and you know tied it to the end of the hook and were drifting that through these schools of milkfish and they were getting a couple every now and then. Well that that just is like, well, if they bit that, then okay, now let's start tying some real flies for them and and uh that has become a thing. I've not been anywhere where where uh I've, I've seen some pictures of people caught them. Now those got, things got a motor. They got I mean, a motor. 
they are like a, a giant ladyfish with with a tarpon tail. That's what that's what it looks like to me. And yeah. I did hook one the last time I was in Christmas Island. I hooked one about as far away as that wall with a bonefish fly, and immediately it was over. You know, I'm in waist deep water, so it wasn't a real high jump. But immediately that thing is over my head, jumping out of the water. I'm like, wow, that is a serious fish. Hits the water, takes off, takes all the line I've got, and then breaks me off. But I wasn't <laughs> prepared. I wasn't prepared for it. But that uh, that fish is is amazing. And uh, it's cool to see that pioneering. It'll be interesting to see if people start uh, start doing that um, hogfish. Hog fish. Yeah, I hope to see. Do you, cool. do you ever see them in the Keys like that? Never. The same kind of situation? Shoot, I don't think either. I've ever killed one that big with my spear gun. I know. <laughs> Let's catch one. That's a really so. big one. That's one of those that's got that giant mouth, you mm-hmm. see? That's a that's a cool thing. So what about the hunting? I know that you're doing a lot of hunting. Yep, I've uh, done a lot of fishing 44 years, I guess. I've been guiding so i've looked for another thing to do and i get i get out hunting as much as i can starting in september i kind of put the fishing rods away and i'm headed off do my hunting what all do you hunt well i do hogs deer and turkey in florida and then this year i'm going elk hunting in uh uh, new mexico oh that's just gonna be cool that's supposed to be the the mecca and then i got this midwest hunting for those giant whitetails and Got fortunate enough to kill a like a one fifty eight wow uh, inch three hundred pound plus deer last last year, so now I've got uh, family in Missouri, and we were gonna we bought a house with my wife's uh, parents with some acreage on it. We had like eighty five acres, mm-hmm. and then some more land came up, and I bought a little bit another hundred sixty acres. So I'm all in this year. So. Wow. I'll probably Are you see bow hunting about, as well as December. rifle hunting? Mostly bow hunt. Mostly. 99%. Yeah. Even with the, the, the hogs and everything? Yeah. 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 Cool. So how much time are you spending in preparing these these pieces of, of uh, ground you've got? It takes time. So I'm not anything like what other, you know, some of these other people do, but I've got help out there. So yeah, I get them to help do the food plots when I can't make it there. I'm going out in a week or 10 days. I forgot, but we're going to. Got to put up a dozen stands. That's going to take some time and put the game cameras out. Try to figure out on this new on these new properties where the the deer are moving. So yeah, it's a full time job. If you wanted to be, it can be over a full time job. Uh, it really can. I mean, all of that, and especially in the different areas. Do you have those game cameras that'll send you the pictures to your phone? Uh, with the property we have in Missouri, can't. There's hardly any cell service anywhere in there. Yeah. Um, but I'd have some in. Uh, in florida but i'm not that interested in florida anymore i'm waiting for my time to get out out west yeah yeah do you get um a similar feeling from hunting as you do from fishing or is it totally different for you no i think it's uh you know pretty similar to getting a bite from something you know if you get them in close enough whether you shoot at, shoot at them or not it's kind of like you've accomplished what you've your your whole day mm-hmm. so you know for instance i've been going out to Midwest for five years and uh, I've shot two deer. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit a little bit picky, but still. Yeah. And yeah. That, that was, that was going to be my next question. You're, you're only shooting two deer, not because you've only had two deer come by your stand, but because you're looking for particular size. Right. I'm looking for a 160 plus buck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got that shot that big one last year, but I passed up so many deer. It's, you know, but I love, 
I love the fact that I want to wait for the bigger one. Right. And I like the fact that I fooled all those deer. They've got under me. They've gone by me. I could have shot them. I draw back on some just to practice mm-hmm. stealth and all that stuff like that. Yeah. But it's it's really hard thing to do is to kill a big buck. Yeah, it is. It's to me, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. And to do it done. with a with a bow too. That right. that's uh, you're 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 decreasing your range substantially, and and uh, you got to get that thing right there. How much are you practicing with your bow? I shoot about well right now. I'm shooting about every day. Yeah. I try shoot. I'd always like to practice at forty yards at least. And fortunately, I got space. I could do it. Yeah. But um, when you go back to thirty or twenty five which is ideally where you want to shoot them, mm-hmm. it, it gets to be an easier shot. Right, right. So, Yeah, I, I like the bow. I uh, practice in my backyard. I, I like the practicing almost more than I like the hunting, but uh, I end up practicing a lot more than I end up shooting deer. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I get about 15, 20 arrows, and you get pretty tired. Yeah. You start yeah. wavering. So what, what pound uh, bow do you use? I got a, I'm shooting 63 pounds. Uh-huh. It's a... Hoyt carbon spider, which yeah. is it's a nice light bow, real short. Yeah, easy to use in the tree. I like the tree stand out. I'm I'm really hadn't been much of a stalker ever. So yeah, and the I'm the kind stand. of guy that can I could sit there six, seven, eight hours. I can sit all day sometimes. And really, if there's any kind of activity, it keeps me keeps me occupied. I like it. I know yeah. that it's one step away from what I'm the goal I'm trying to accomplish. Right, just sitting there. Yeah, because he's he, at any time can pop out, mm-hmm. especially if you're hunting under the rut. So, do you do anything else in the tree stand? Read a book? I I play I, with your phone. I, I play Scrabble a little bit. <laughs> <That's> about <laughs> it. I try to stay on, try to stay on what I'm doing. But uh, I'm always afraid I'm gonna fall asleep in the tree stand. I bought some that if you do, you're still okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got plenty of <laughs> plenty of harnesses. Yeah, uh, you're strapped in. Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, do you ever take other people like clients or just friends or do you keep hunting do you keep hunting as your personal thing i mean like you're you've made your your living your career as a fisherman now you're spending a lot more time hunting not that you haven't all along but a lot of times i I notice that people when they get into hunting that's personal like like the fishing guides that get into hunting they don't want to take anybody they want this is their thing maybe with family maybe with friends but this is their thing it's not a not a for pay kind of deal no i don't take anybody for pay but i do like to take all my charter fishing friends and stuff because we have some good lease lease acreage in florida and mm-hmm. we have a little camp set up and we all go up and have big bonfires and shoot hogs and you know they appreciate it because they don't you know living in the keys you don't get to see much trees or grass or right. whatever and when they get in the woods it's a, a treat for them so i try to keep that and that's uh, that's a good thing to do in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Get a cold front buzz through. Hey, let's go, and you know, you take two just because it's a five hour drive. You get yeah, you know, just get up there and go hunting for a day, two days, and you go back. Wow, back in your fishing. And what's the hog population like? Uh, we got plenty of hogs. Is it out of control? <laughs> eh, no, it's not out of control. But uh, you know, most people have, oh, we hate the hogs. They root up everything and everything. But you know, my house. It, in arcade we got a feeder in the front yard and i there's hogs there they'll probably sleeping under it right now <laughs> you know um i left them this morning they were standing down while they're eating so um i don't think they're out of control if, if you do get too many you know we we pick on the pick on a few and 
keep it down. But so I did this podcast with uh, Robert Arrington, deer meat for dinner. Do you know who he is? I've heard him. Yeah, guy's a character, and uh, he's got some property, and he's constantly catching these small boars and cutting their nuts off, mm-hmm. making a boar a bar. Do you do that too? I don't do that, but I've shot plenty of them. That's I've shot, we shot a couple this year. He fact. was saying that that it really really made a a huge difference in that in making that a food animal yeah oh they are it's you can't even when you're cleaning one of them i mean your knife slipping out of your hand with the the fat that's on them yeah before they're a bar yeah when they're when they're a bar yeah yeah because they just eat and don't do much super good yeah super good yeah i should do more of it but um there's a ton of guys in that arcade area where i'm at that do it all around you. There's, you know, those, so those, dog are, those hogs end up on your property. Yeah. They end up on your property. Most, mm-hmm. A lot of times. I mean, yeah. then usually they'll cut tip of the year, cut the tail off yeah. to kind of indicate, but you kind of know too, because instead of looking like a lean feral hog, these things look like a, a barrel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Now on your property out in the Midwest, are you, do you have hogs there? No hogs at all yet. So that would seem, they say there's some around. Yeah. We've seen so, a bear. That's really, yeah, that's kind of intimidating. When Pretty you big ones. On. Uh, I, it was a big one, the one we saw, but. And, and that's in Missouri, did you say? Yeah. Southwestern so, Missouri. Southwestern. Wow. So that's black bear for sure. Yeah, black right? bear. Oh, yeah. And because we, I just drove with my son from um, all the way across the country to Montana, and he's a big reader. He reads all kinds of books, and uh, he read the book, The Revenant, and I watched the movie. The that's Revenant. what I like it, too. So. <laughs> I watched the movie. He read the book. Uh, apparently, the book was a lot longer than the movie. But in the movie, they portrayed that that all happened in the Rocky Mountains. And we're driving through South Dakota, and it's it's rolling, kind of <clears throat> hilly. You know, there's some little cliffs and stuff. And but he was he was saying, you know, this is where. Or he said he said, uh, isn't it crazy that there used to be a bunch of grizzly bears right here? I'm looking around at the country, I'm like, really? This, yeah, doesn't really seem like a grizzly bear kind of country from what I've seen grizzly bears in, which is more like Yellowstone national park and those kind of areas. And he's like, yeah, this is where the revenant was this area all in here. And, uh, man, there used to be grizzly bears all over those, those flatter areas too. And I guess, I guess we pushed them to the, to the mountains, but they used to, I mean, at least that's what that book says that that's where that all happened. I don't think there would be any down that way, but yeah, when you're, when you're bow hunting, and a bear is is there that's a that is a little intimidating because a uh, black bear is still super strong i mean a lot of people don't i don't have a lot of fear of a black bear like i do of a grizzly bear i mean i have respect for both but there's some fear well grizzly with bear, the you, grizzly bear you, you're you pucker up when you see them see a fish in alaska but we had some bears on a piece of property we had a lease on in florida and i get in a stand and i see these the heck of a noise coming at me and here comes three bears. I, they, they came right to my stand. One circled around one way, smelling it. The other circled the other way. And then the one just looked up straight at me. Oh boy. <laughs> I got my bow and I'm going like, go away bear. Yelling at it and everything. Wow. And, uh, it finally, they all moseyed off over there. And the one that just looked at me, took a poop and then he took off. So, I don't know. <laughs> he said, this is mine. Yeah, this is my I'm gonna territory. Let you, I'm going to let you be here today. but uh, I can tell you, I got out of stand before dark that day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and those, what size bears do you think those were? 
Yeah, a couple hundred pounds. Yeah, fifties. Plenty big. And plenty all big. Yeah. All of a sudden, the three of them. What about coyotes up there? Yeah, we got plenty of those. They're hard to hunt. I mean, they're smart. They are super smart. I was. Uh, we got bobcats too. My wife was. And I've never seen them. We have the feeder in the front yard, and uh, there's squirrels on it all the time. And she's seen twice in the last week a bobcat jump out from the woods, grab a squirrel, and go down it. And I've never seen a bobcat. You barely, rarely see them in the woods, number one. And then to see them attack something is, uh, yeah, that's pretty rare. But she saw it twice this week. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that becomes the, the easiest food around, I guess, right? Yeah. The, the feeder and, and, and all that activity and they they're not find, paying attention they're just find a little place where they can hide and they and when she saw it did it did it kind of do the the low crawl over and then but then she leap? Could, it's hanging in the palmettos and then it's close enough to the feeder that it when a squirrel makes a little mistake he's he but he's yeah she said it, the did one it. she saw beforehand was stealthy it was down yeah crouched down and if she's seen it twice i bet it happens a hundred more times yeah, yeah. <laughs> happens all the time that's what that's what uh, a lot of people are talking about. You know how many um, uh, mountain lions that people are seeing all over the country, and one of the reasons I was listening to the Stephen Ronella podcast, and and he was talking to a, a wildlife biologist, and he was saying one of the reasons why people are seeing more, or there are more reported cases of them, is because everybody has trail cameras now, and everybody has security cameras on their house, and so this these mountain lions might have been coming through there for a hundred years. Oh yeah. But now they're getting recorded on the cameras. It might be the kind of the same, same deal that those bobcats are eating squirrels. We just constantly. weren't watching. You just now <laughs> have a front row seat. That's right. Well, we'll sit out on the porch at night and just watch the, you know, watch the game come in or turkeys. And yeah, I was going to ask the about turkeys. And, and, uh, occasionally a deer will sneak up in there. But do you hunt the turkeys? I do hunt them some. It's not my favorite one thing to do. I yeah. get so, so people into get into them or not. It's kind of like, permit fishing i think you know you have the guys that'll uh, permit okay I'll, I'll cast it one but they're not that into it like a fitz coker or something he's probably caught more permit than most people but he doesn't really care much doesn't about care. it and then you have the other guys that just go all in and the turkey hunters are are similar i have i have found that i i really like turkey hunting a lot um well i could understand i mean that I, I just still you know I've spent all my time hunting the deer and then yeah. to take off in gobbler season in April is like, yeah, I know when you're guiding is, is a tough thing. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough time of the year, but I, I find it to be fun. They're, they're, they're really smart. Oh, they're, they are, man, really smart. Or I'm really dumb. No, one or the other. I, I think you got it right. It's, it's, it's a hard <laughs> thing to do. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's like, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just like fishing. It's just like, it's just like fishing. Some days you go out there and you can catch a permit on fly in 15 minutes. Other days you can go for 50 days and not have one even acknowledge your fly. They acknowledge you. They take off as fast as they possibly can go. Right. But I find turkey hunting's like that too. A lot of it is uh, is based upon the weather and the weather. You know what that magic weather is. I'm not experienced enough yet to know exactly. Like, oh, today's gonna be a good day. I'm gonna go get one with my bow. Like I'm not quite there yet. Yeah, you got to kind of just put the time in and keep watching until you figure out what what makes them tick. I I don't know it that well. I know my couple of my wife's uncles up in Missouri. They're, I mean, pros. I mean, it's yeah. like that's who you go with. Yeah, <laughs> you go with them. Yeah, yeah. we need to go here. I'm going like, okay, why do we go in here? This this is a good ridge right here. Oh, I thought you wanted to be in the bottom. Well, sometimes we want to be in the bottom, but 
we need to be in the top this time. Uh -huh. so it's like, <laughs> okay, you're the guide. Yeah, that's good. That's that's the way a guide is. Everything always has a depends on the end of it. Like well, I thought you know, we were trying to fish the in incoming tide. Well, we are, but now we're on the outgoing tide. <laughs> so we got to fish, do something. <laughs> it's, it's the fun thing about turkey hunting is, is it's one something you can do with somebody else because mm -hmm. you could call for somebody and then they, you know that's fun too. And I like going with somebody else turkey hunting, maybe because they're better usually when I'm, than me, so it helps me get one. But. Yeah, that's what I like going with my friend Graham Graham Taylor because I I fished I, I hunted this property for a long time, and then I have him come along and and he peeks his head over the the hill he says there's eight right there i said yeah they're always there and he goes yeah but this is this is perfect i mean he saw something in that situation that i had seen in that situation and i hadn't seen the potential of what was about to happen he's like sit down right there and he starts calling like more aggressively than i've ever heard anyone call i don't have any confidence in in this uh happening because when i try to call that aggressively it is bad news. I'm not a very good turkey caller. He's an amazingly good turkey caller, and that's just he speaks their language. And he started hammering on that call, and all of a sudden, all eight of those turkeys, they, they raise their head up, they look, and I'm like, yep, this is what I normally see, and they usually take off the, <laughs> other, way. the other way. This time, they <clears throat> came running at full speed right at us, and I'm just like, man. I have a lot to learn about turkey hunting. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. Like, then we'll, I'll go with him in another place, and everything is so quiet, and he'll barely be making a peep. But he saw something in that situation where he's like, "Man, it's time to raise the roof. We're we're gonna get that. It's, it's going down right Bring now." Bring it to the hen house. Yeah, and and he did. Uh, but like you, I like to have somebody with me because uh, they're generally much better caller. Usually, it's my son. He's a way better caller than me, and uh, we managed to get some. But, but it's just, it makes it just hard enough that it, it starts to, uh, it starts to, you know, light that fire, get that obsession. Well, it's going. like, it's like throwing a crab at a permit or throwing a fly. It's, it's just that much harder. Right. And it, that's what takes you to that next level or to wanting to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what about your, uh, what about your sons now? And you've got kind of a family tradition, um, going on with, uh, with making a living in the fishing industry. Yeah. You know, I'm fortunate as heck. I got. Two boys, uh, one's a diver and a spear fisherman, so he's got that side of the industry covered. And then that's Robert and my oldest. And then Chris, he's a, just a phenomenal light tackle sport fisherman. Yeah. I always say I gave him all my spots, but he, mm -hmm. he's, he's done different things to make him his own. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, I go fishing with him. I'm saying, what are you doing? You know, he's doing something totally different than what we had done, and he's having – you know, better success. And, and do you think that's because the fisheries changed a little bit or because he has learned a lot of things from you and a lot of things on his own and he's adapting to these I think spots? He's, he's adapting. I mean, he's a, he, you know, you adapt, that's what you do. And I think right. with less fish, we become better fishermen. Yes. So we've had to adapt through the, through the stages, Yeah. through the years, you know, and I've been in the Keys for 44 years. You were down there. How many? Oh, it was probably about 18 years. Yeah. So yeah. You, you've been through, you know, no boats on the flats right. to where every jet ski and every boat is run over your favorite spot. Right. And uh, you still could fish it, but you got to tend to it a little differently. That's you all. You definitely have to tend to it a little differently. You know, a little earlier in the morning or whatever. But so both of them are doing great. They're uh, got their own thriving businesses and 
They're both really good at it, so I've been real proud of them. Was there ever a time that it that you wondered if they were going to live in the Keys? Like, yeah, yeah, there was, but because it's a hard thing to do, it really is. Robert wanted to go to college, and he he went to South Florida and graduated. And he, but he always wanted a business, mm-hmm. so I, he said, "I'm." He came back, you know, to kind of regroup and everything like that. And uh, they were selling a little tackle shop at the Hurricane Hole there, and yeah. He wanted, I said, if you want to be in business, there it is. It's a little 10 by 10 shed, renting mask and fins and selling a little bit of scooby gear and stuff. Yeah. And so he did it. He, he went ahead and did it and made it kind of a thriving little business. I bet. Yeah. There's a lot of traffic there. Even with a tackle shop upstairs and everything. And then about two years into it, the guy that owned the tackle shop at the Hurricane Holes wanted to get out. And, oh, man, he wants, you know, it's too much money. I said, you want to be in business? You're going to get in business. Uh, so he figured out a way to buy the inventory and take over the tackle shop. And now he's got a thriving, thriving business. Really That's good great. place. And does he, does he have like spearfishing guided trips or does he do that too? He does. That's, he does all the local tourist type stuff. And then he does customized um, uh, spearfishing trips and diving trips. Does so. he have the little, um, the little bar that, that, drives around oh no that's not his yeah he might yeah, yeah he should he, he might have those I, i've seen a lot of uh talk about that they're like this is the worst idea i've ever seen in my life guess what they're killing it though. i'm sure they are i am sure they are um he that- uh he's for get back to his uh diving but he he's just purchased uh and getting built a 34 freeman oh nice so he's going to do a lot of long range day diving trips like that mm-hmm. long and, range like around the tortugas yeah and in that area yeah, on the rebecca channels yeah. and where, where you can actually have a chance to go shoot some really big fish mm-hmm. and so it's going to be kind of a high end most uh divers are you know they don't they just like to go on that 120 dollar dive or whatever and yeah this is going to be like going on a fishing charter but it'll be uh I'm sure there's a market for, for that because you know in all of the in all of the years that i was down there and, and guiding you would have these people that would ask oh i want to do this on one of the days i'd never knew who to send them to i mean i'm sure there were some people doing it but not high profile yeah and they were doing it on you know two three day trips right because it takes time to get down there and stuff now you have a boat you're two hours anywhere and you can get your dives in and come back with a big stringer of fish man that sounds awesome yeah and then chris Chris, what's his, so what's Robert's place called? Finn's Dive Center. Finn's Dive Center, and that's at the Hurricane Hall. Right. And then uh, Chris is. Um, Real Fly Charters. Real Fly. Yeah, I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, he's pretty good on staying up on that. He's got a passion for swordfish, and um, he does it as well as anybody in Key West. Not as good as they do in Alamorado. Yeah. That stands it because it's possible to beat that guy. He, uh, I don't think he let, he does anything else. No, he's, I mean, he's, he's all about it. Yeah. He is really all about the swordfish. That's interesting how that has changed. I mean, I remember the, my first experience with swordfishing was Kenny Harris saying, uh, you got to go do this with me. It's super fun. I've got it all worked out. We go out there in the middle of the night. We got all the lights. We have this elaborate setup. And he wanted to take me in the middle of the tarpon season. So I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm fishing all day going again the next day and i had been going for a long time and kenny wanted to take me nighttime sword fishing and i'm already incredibly sleep deprived oh yeah i mean just all i'm just craving sleep like like never in my life 
And so I go out there all night with, with Kenny and we don't catch any. And I, that was my first really and last nighttime sword fishing situation. It was just the wrong time of the year for me. Like it, I needed sleep more than I needed to catch a swordfish. And, <laughs> yeah. and so we go out there, but I do have to admit that that nighttime deal was incredible because you get out there and the stars were just amazing. Oh, you see and the lights of Cuba. There, yeah. You're out there in the middle of the ocean. And when we did it, it was very calm, very nice. And man, it's, it's a little spooky. I yeah. Mean, that's, you have to you have to be on your toes. And my first time we caught one, yeah. I was at a 20 foot sea craft. And wow. um, that just got what me year going. was that? That was 1978 probably. And so what happened to, to, I know Scott Walker had a lot to do with, with, uh, with some of the daytime sword fishing thing, but what happened? Cause I don't, I don't hear anybody doing it at night anymore because it was a pain in the ass. You're out there all night long. You got these huge lights. I mean, I'm sure, I guess people do that still. It's, it's really fun. I mean, when you, when you catch a fish or two at night, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, but they're, you know, you're not using any electric stuff. You, you can use a, like a 40 Marques or a 50 mm. Marques on, on a six foot rod, you know, and, and, you know, it's one-on-one you, and it's, you're all hooked up. You're not just pushing a button. Right. Now, some of the guys have reels that you can take the motors off and then you go into fighting them. Mm-hmm. Some guys uh, have drills that have uh, attachments yeah. for the handle. So you can fish a regular reel and then use the, uh, and they catch the fish regularly. Hmm. But, you know, it's like bottom fishing in 1,800 feet of water. Right. And <laughs> it's it's fun. I mean, I remember our first trip, I took Robert. He just said, I want to catch a big fish. I said, well, let's go try this, you know. And people knew about it. I mean, it was getting done a bit. But, you know, I was dropping a, a concrete block for a weight. Yeah. And, you know, just doing it kind of all wrong, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were hooking fish, you know. And, but that was all done at night. No, this is day. Oh, that was day. So you were telling me about going and do, trying sword fishing all wrong, concrete block, concrete taking Robert. Block, taking Robert and uh, drop it. And, you know, at first we thought we wanted to, uh, the, the, the way to separate. So we had to find the right pound test. Yeah. So when you got it down there, that you could pull on it and break it where it didn't break going down. Well, the first thing about a concrete block is when it goes down, it goes at a angle. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. So... That didn't work out real good, but the first day we did catch a uh, 380-pound thresher shark. Wow. That was an amazing fish. Well, actually, the first fish we hooked, we could not stop. Huh. And we got 100-pound braid, and we got a 50-wide. It's probably got 2,000 yards of it on there. Yeah. We hooked the fish. It just went straight offshore. I was on a plane, basically, maybe 12, 13 miles an hour, chasing the fish, and we went half a mile with him and he had it got us finally down to the core of the reel and I had to pull a more pressure on him and wow. popped him off. So we don't have no idea what that was. Fortunately, I had another rod. Sea monster. It was a sea monster, man. We went back and caught that thresher. Had you seen many threshers? I'd never, I'd caught one in, uh, Massachusetts, a small one. Yeah. Which was a great fighting fish. And so we caught this one and, um, uh, it was it was a massive fish. Wow. He was happy. He was I bet. He got the pull. So and we were doing hand cranking back then. So Yeah. And that that hand cranking, I mean, for something that takes 
what 10 15 minutes to hit the bottom with a with a concrete block oh, yeah. or a or something equivalent it's about, it's about four or five minutes with a with a lead weight to yeah hit to the hit the bottom yeah. and and about 45 minutes to get it back up oh you're hand cranking but yeah, you bring two or three kids with you <laughs> yeah and they sit there and they just start cranking it so <laughs> yeah that was my method yeah bring bring three or four kids bring bring a few more yeah so, bring all your friends you want yeah <laughs> and uh but yeah I, I really enjoyed the nighttime fishing it it's cool and if you have the nights you know it's, we did it in the summer mostly yeah so if you get some nice nights you can go and get you know kind of dialed in do it a couple nights in a row but you don't have to wake up in the morning but being sleep deprived like you right and that's why i don't do it anymore myself i'm just getting old yeah. <laughs> i don't want to go so out if night. you were to do it do you do you feel like you have to have the lights and and the whole rig I yeah the lights help yeah no doubt we've actually uh, had them up in the lights chasing flying fish which I never thought you'd ever see uh, the flying fish will lay around That's in your incredible. lights with their wings you know spread out yeah and swordfish just comes and I've seen him get a couple wow. and then uh, my son Chris it's quite some time ago but he hooked one on fly really that was probably in a sixty five pound range and that's like just that. flopping a fly out there in front of one. He had him swimming through the light, and um, so he was stripping it, and the sword never paid a bit of attention to it. And I said, well, just stop it, like it was one of those flying fish. And uh, as soon as he stopped it, the fish made a big U-turn, came back around, went right up from underneath it. Wow. But as you know, with a billfish, they're going to take a tap at it with the bill and then go back. So when they tapped at it, he hit a little bit ahead of it, tip-wrapped the fly, even though he yeah. ate it, tip-wrapped the fly around the the bill and it's really sharp yes and he got about a 30 yard run out of it and pulled it and it busted him off wow one of the people that i'm um i'm gonna have on the podcast is uh bouncer bouncer smith and yeah. uh one of his big best catches as far as i'm concerned is a uh with mart martin or Rostegi, yeah uh got a sword on fly and that's I wanted what to... made us think we could try to go oh really it. yeah so. yeah that's that's amazing i i mean What's really amazing about that is it's not like a sailfish on fly or something like that where you're trolling, you stop the boat, and then you flop this fly out there, and it's kind of fly fishing. Right. But that is actually you're casting in front of this billfish that came from 2,000 feet of water. Looking for food. Yeah, and you're, you, you get them to eat. That's Plus, catching, you know, you can only use a 12-inch leader uh shock tippet and right. then that bill is what four feet long uh-huh. right i mean one third the length of the fish yeah i mean even even on the small swordfish the bill is so incredibly long it, that that's hitting all over the leader and one side is super sharp but the other side is kind of duller yeah if you've ever noticed that on them but uh yeah martin's fish was that was a game changer yeah and uh people have tried i don't think it gets tried enough yeah but uh we always have a fly rod out whenever we're doing the nighttime. Do you think that is it uh, that his fish was at night? It was at night. Yeah. Yes. In fact, there was a blind. He had it just soaking, and it was a blind bite, is what I heard. But you'll get that information wow. straight from the uh, yeah, from, we'll see. from the bouncer. Um, we'll see. He's a, he's an interesting guy. He's uh, done a lot too. Oh, definitely a legend. He is a legend. He has caught everything, done everything, and yeah. good at it. I, I had fished a guy from. Um, south africa that was on the boat there was a guy over there that had 
uh, teased up some swordfish in about a five-day period mm -hmm. and set the three records that were set. Wow. And I fished a mate that had been on that boat. He was over here. He told me they're, how they were doing it with a soft head and a strip and slow trolling on a, a deep troll with a clip. Hmm. So when a swordfish would hit the troll bait, it would troll real slow. It would clip, come off the clip, and then the swordfish would follow the lighted uh, soft head up, and they would tease wow. it to the boat. And he said, really, anything they threw in the water, they ate. Wow. Just like you're teasing the sail. That's cool. Well, Skip Smith had started doing that about maybe four or five years ago, but he was doing it just to catch big swordfish. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they were teasing them up and baiting and switching them, and they had pretty good success rate at night doing that. What about just having a hook on the on the the slow trolled soft head. You could, but they wanted to. They wanted to see. They it. wanted to see him come up. And, yeah, and you know, feed him. So yeah. So a funny story about that guy from South Africa. He had these. He said he saw I tied flies, and he he said, "Well, I've got these uh, guinea fowls. I can get you all the pelts you want. They're beautiful, perfect fly. You know, tie material." I said, "Well, send me a couple." So he stuffed some in a a FedEx bag or whatever it was. They were tanned and salted nicely, and I get them, and I was just getting ready to go on vacation. I had them on the coffee table. I opened up, wow, these are beautiful, you know, gray and black and white. And uh, I just laid them down. I said, we're, we're leaving for vacation tomorrow. I forgot and left them there. Well, we went gone for about seven days, and when I got back, there was a tick infestation in my house. <laughs> oh, they no. were crawling up the cracks of the walls, all in the carpet. Oh. Now, this – or South African ticks. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on the phone with Orkin or somebody, and I get them to come over. Oh, we get rid of them. So they got rid of them. It's going to take us about a month to get rid of them. So they had to come in, kill all the ones there, come back, kill all the ones that were laid eggs, and then the ones that laid more eggs. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the scariest thing. I had no idea what the things Wow. Carried or whatever like that. Man, you just look on the walls and you see ticks they everywhere. They were going into cracks. I mean, there was a line of them like ants. That is a uh, that is a nightmare for me. I, that's one of the reasons that keeps me from being just totally obsessed with turkey hunting. Yeah. Is because I don't know what it is, but if there's a if there's a tick out there, it's on me. Yeah. And immediately, I mean, I step out of the truck and I'm like, what? The, how did that happen so fast? Missouri's the same way for me. I mean, it's just I didn't realize there was. In Florida, we got a few ticks, but there are hardly any compared to oh Missouri, you know just, Tennessee. That whole Tennessee, belt, yeah. that whole belt. I'm sure it, you can extend it out into Kansas too. Probably that it, you know Oklahoma, Kansas, all that too. That has just horrible ticks. But I know. I, I mean, I don't know anything about that. But I can tell you from Missouri, Tennessee, <laughs> yeah. you know the Carolinas really, really bad. Luckily, I don't think that I've gotten Lyme disease. I usually don't get bit. I, I got a hair trigger on those things, man. I feel them crawling, and I know exactly what it is. Yeah, you'll wake up. Oh, oh boy. Getting that off of there. My first, the time that I was going to uh, get my son his first turkey, we we saw all these birds, and we uh, we got in front of them, and I had them sitting up against a tree, and they're coming. I mean, they're coming. This is our best, I think to this day, it's still our best situation, best scenario. They're coming. There are big gobblers in with all these birds. And we're sitting up against this tree, and my son says, Dad, i got ticks all over me. And I said, well, can you just wait, like, five minutes? And th these birds are coming. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for. 
And I look down, and he does. He's got them crawling the all over him. Oh, they are all over him. And the birds are getting closer, and he's getting squirmier. And the birds are getting closer and closer and closer. And I'm like, it's going to happen in like a minute. If you can just hold off for a minute, you're going to have the biggest turkey on the whole property walk right up to you. And he just finally, he just stood up. So I can't take it anymore. We got to get out of here. And he had hundreds. He sat in a nest or something. I don't know. There were hundreds. I think they call it seed ticks. Yeah. They they sit in big pods and they hold on to each other. Yeah. And then if, if you go by, they got little snares on them or grabs your hair and it'll just whole bottle just slide right on you. Well, that's what he got. Yeah. And it was all over him and he just couldn't take it. We had, we, I know that's what I, (laughs) I get, I get chills going up and down my spine when I think about it. Cause it's just, I don't like ticks. I can handle all the mosquitoes you want to send my way, but ticks, I just don't really like them. So what's next for RT? You've got, you've got a, 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 a incredible career in fishing. You've, you're doing some amazing things in hunting. What, what's left that you want to do? Where's your passion these days? Uh, well, it's just been the hunting has, you know, taken over. So I want to get my hunting stuff in order and be able to go and do that successfully. Travel a little bit more with that. Mm -hmm. Um, we are going to Argentina this year with my wife's going to go actually shoot nice doves with me and then we're going to do some of oh, the dove shooting? shooting yeah take a take a pad for your shoulder i've, I've already buy, i got one order to amazon i went get two yeah. i'm not kidding man yeah. if you like to shoot as as much as 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 i do it the first i went here's my story from argentina i went with my dad and my brother-in-law and uh we went down there i didn't really know what to expect just going down there, I didn't. I was I was fishing all the time. Didn't do a lot of uh, uh, of research on what to expect. I just said, "Dad's got this." I'm just long for the ride, and so I go down there, and uh, each person is is given a bird boy and two Benelli shotguns. And uh, while you're shooting one, he's loading the other, and it is just incredible. I mean, the first day I went out, and he's also got like a doorman's. Counter. Ticker, like a counter and good shot oh good senor nice nice shot that's what they <laughs> keep saying the first day we we got there late and we went out for a half day and i think i shot 750 i was like man that's that's pretty good yeah 750 i'd never shot a shotgun that many times in a day right, right? so the next day go out shoot 1500 and i'm like wow that's that's got to be some kind of record that's amazing well, we went back to the lodge and I looked at, I, I started looking around and, oh, every day they would give, they would give out stuff. They'd be like, oh, here, here's a, here's a 750 t-shirt. And it said, you know, whatever lodge we were at, 750 doves. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Then they give away something else. And then, then they had this, this leather shotgun case, it looked like a saddle. It was beautiful. And it said 3000 dove club on it. I was like, man, I'm getting that thing. I, I want that. I really want that. So I decided tomorrow I'm shooting three thousand. My dad's just like, okay, because the deal was is uh, is he paid for the trip, but I paid for the ammo, Ooh. and so that was great. And I didn't know what I was in for, but I wanted that shotgun case. So we went out there, and I did shoot three thousand that day. And the next day, I shot uh, six. <laughs> six <laughs> doves because I was just so wiped out. But I thought. Uh, at the time I was like, man, 3000 in a day, that's gotta be 
some kind of record and and they had all these pictures on the wall there and i started looking around and and here's a guy that shot 10,000 oh here's a God. guy that shot 5,000 7,000 9,000 yeah. and i go over to the biggest picture there it's this guy and he had shot 13,000 in a day Holy and he had five or six bird boys they've got five or six guns i mean it was a it was like an assembly line of just handing in these guns and his shooting. So we, we started doing some math and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was pretty much from sun up to sundown. He had to be shooting a dove every five seconds wow. all day long. And I'm telling you what, that is an endurance event. That would be it's, an endurance that's event. It's an endurance event that it, at some point it's not even that much fun anymore. I mean, it turns into work probably at about 4,000. I mean, all of a sudden it's work and you're not even halfway there. But, you know, for people that don't understand why you would do that and why it would be interesting to shoot 13,000 doves, these doves down there are, are completely out of control. And so hunters can come down there and shoot them or they're going to poison them because they just There's decimate. Like 50 million in that one area alone. And, and apparently they, um, they breed like six times a year. I mean, just an amazing amount, much way more than our doves. They're like yeah. flying rats. And well, I think with the prices of shells, I'm probably going to be shooting about 500 a day. Yeah, and and, and 500. Hey, listen, 500 is a wonderful day. That is that is the 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 greatest dove hunt you could ever ever imagine in the United States, and and it's constant. And you can you you know there you can start to be like, okay, well, I'm not very good at a, a going away shot. So I'm only going to take going away shots for the next two hours. Yeah. You can do that. Yeah. Or, you know, the one that I really like is I want to work on the high shot. And my guy kept saying, shoot, shoot, shoot. And I'm looking up and I'm like, that dove is way too far. And he's like, no, 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 senor. He's like, just big lead, big lead. And so I would see them coming and they'd be flying in a perfectly straight line. And I just take the shotgun and just go faster than them. And then boom, right there. You got, got to it. where you could get them so high. Yeah. And I came back and I thought I was the best, best shot. I know I was the best I sh shot ever in my life. And I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've gotten really a lot better at shooting, which I did, but buddy, it goes away fast. It goes <laughs> yeah. away fast. I yeah. mean, when you first come back, you will be able to shoot anything. You wait six months and you'll be right back where you <laughs> right were. Where you were. <laughs> got you. Yeah. Well, the, the traveling and all this stuff, I mean, I, I think that, I don't know. Whatever, whatever it is that you're into, for the next uh, the next few years, they better watch out because with your track record, you you get stuff dialed in and get it get it mastered. I mean, that's what you do. Well, that's what I'm trying to do with the deer now. So we'll see how it goes. I'll keep you informed. <laughs> All right. Well, I should come up there and go with you, or or you go hog hunting. I want to do that with my with my with my son. He's he's expressed much interest in doing that. Well, we that. should do that. We do it in the wintertime sometime when it's nice out there and get the big campfires going yeah. and well let me know we'll do it right. well thanks for this i really appreciate it it's a pleasure man yeah, thanks man. for having me all right awesome we'll see you soon Temple. robert truss has done a lot of things and he's got a lot more to do whether it's hunting or fishing man the guy is in tune with his world send me a podcast at saltwater experience email podcast at saltwaterexperience.com you can send me an email check it out i'll answer that right away and most people have been writing some incredibly nice emails they have been giving me good suggestions on people that i can interview for future episodes and i really appreciate that that really 
helps to know who you want me to interview and what you want me to ask them. That's really cool. Really like that. You can hear all past episodes on iTunes by searching Tom Roland Podcast there or another, a real easy way that you can find all of the episodes is you can also go to saltwaterexperience.com slash podcast and that will get you to a place where you can see all of the episodes that we have produced right there. You can listen to any of them on your computer if you prefer on your phone, iTunes or Google Play or man, anywhere you find podcasts, that's where you'll find us. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.